Hey, this is Rob and that's Micaiah and you are listening to You Forgot One. Today on You Forgot One, we're going to discover the truth that there are no facts in Jamaica, only versions. As we explore Bob Marley and the Whalers, Exodus. Micaiah, what do our listeners need to know about the greatest selling non-compilation reggae album? I, I like the amount of caveats to this. Uh, yeah, this this is the ninth studio album from Bob Marley and the Wailers. Um, and for me, this is the best one for us to represent who is Bob Marley, right? Um, historically, I mean, I, I think a lot of us kind of grew up on the legend compilation. I mean, that, that was certainly my intro. Um, and when you look at it and you, and you, and you start to, when you want to get more into Bob Marley and you look at that album, you're like, okay, so these are my favorite songs. Which album are they all on? And then you look at it, you're like, wow, um, this is a 14 track compilation. Like five of these songs are on one album called Exodus. And then you go to that album and every song that isn't a greatest hit is still an enormous hit. Like er- every song on there is just uh, cooked to perfection. I mean, it- it's it's really amazing. Um, it's one that he didn't record um, not entirely in Jamaica. A lot of it was uh, in London um, with a, a new crop of musicians, which brought a new sound. Um, the mix is is pretty different. It, it's very much um, Island Records trying to market him to the biggest audience possible, um, because he's he's coming off of uh, Rastaman Vibration, which at that point was it was his highest like the greatest selling record, right? And I think it even did better than Exodus after Exodus came out. So it, he he was a huge star after that album, and so. Yeah, he followed up with, with an even bigger sounding album. And to great effect, you know, a lot of people try to do this and fail spectacularly. And I think we get his greatest moment um, on a on a studio album, I should say. Um, yeah, it's a it's it's very carefully. Uh, the, the track list is very like carefully curated. Uh, there's there's a definite like side one side two quality to it, which I think is what makes it a great LP. Uh, you know, so the, the the first half of it is more of the political and and spiritual as well, but as that relates as to as as Jesus. So side one is much more political. Uh, you get, but also with the kind of like trademark mysticism. And, and religious aspects of, of Bob Marley because I mean, you just can't separate it. But side two gets more into a little bit more, more optimism even. And it's more, you know, it's jamming, right? It's, it's party music. It, it's romantic music. And it ends with one love. I mean, pretty much the greatest reggae anthem that there ever was, you know? So it's, for me, uh, I mean, a pretty perfect album. You know, not just a perfect representation of Bob Marley, but a pretty perfect album. 
Did I say too much? No, that's good. Okay. So, Micaiah, you and I are both from Florida Beach communities. Yes. What was your introduction to Bob Marley? Right. It was the the legend compilation. Um, I I had some friends who had a pool. And so I spent a lot of weekends at their house and they had the the legend CD. And we wore that thing out. I mean, we we would go back and forth between listening to the especially like on Friday nights. All right. So the radio station Z98 did a Friday night 80s. So we listened to a lot of 80s music. And then we would listen to probably whichever Michael Jackson CD they had or I brought over and Bob Marley. All right. This is just what we like to listen to every Friday night. And when we were 11, 12 years old. Um, but that, that's, that's when I remember like knowing who Bob Marley was, but whenever we listen to the CD, it's just like, I already know these songs. There, there's no moment in time where I had to learn the words to one love or three little birds. I don't remember having to ever learn them. I don't remember when I first heard them. You know, it, it just feels so ingrained because whenever, if you're from a beach community, whatever restaurant you go to, that's the soundtrack. It's still very, very popular on the radio in those communities, you know, and then you get the CD and you're like, all of these songs are by the same guy. You know, it's pretty mind blowing, you know? So yeah, it's just one of those things where it's just like, you know, well, yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's pretty much, pretty much it. Yeah. I, I'm with you. It, it's, it's one of those things. And in, in if you are a listener from a beach community, then you're going to know exactly what we're talking about. And if you're not, it, it may just be a vacation experience. But if you grew up near the ocean, you grow up knowing these songs before you learn to speak. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, they, they are they are a part of the DNA of these communities. And so I think about Hollywood Beach and Dania Beach and Fort Lauderdale Beach and Miami Beach and, you know, eventually moving as an adult to St. Augustine, Florida and, you know, the conch house in St. Augustine's famous reggae Sunday. And, you know, you think about this, this music and you go, oh, I have been, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I have been surrounded by this album most of my Mm -hmm. life. Yeah. And so when you really start thinking about it, especially side B, the second side of this LP, I, without thinking about it, I know every word to every song. Right. I mean, you it's, look at that side too. It, it's jamming, waiting in vain, three little birds, one love. I mean, like it's, that's, that's unreal. That's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. If he had one or two of those songs on another album, we'd still be like, this must be one of the best albums of all time. These are in succession. Yeah. On one LP, on one side. It's phenomenal. It, I I often wonder, so I have I have Natty Dread, Exodus, and Live on vinyl. Same. But Exodus. I I think that I have worn the groove hmm. on side B of this record, maybe more than any, because 
as much as I love this album, especially with kids in the house who love this album, mm-hmm. I play side two of this album almost exclusively. Oh, interesting. And, and so at this point, because of how disproportionately I play the two sides of this album, they sound different, which is something I noticed in preparation for this podcast mm-hmm. is listening to side one and then side two. It is like you can hear you can hear how much the needle has worn the grooves in on the oh. second side of my uh, of this record for me. But again, one of those great things, if you're a record collector, nearly every record shop you go to is going to have a 10 or $15 copy of Exodus available for you. It is, it is a ubiquitous record and it's one worth having. Yeah, you'll, you'll find it at some point, right? You, you, it, or it finds you, who knows? Yeah, that, I mean, that, that would be the way Bob would say it, I'm sure. Potentially. Potentially. Certainly the way I think maybe our guests would say it. Speaking of which, we have an incredible guest today. Micaiah, tell us about our guest, the author the 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 curator of reggae roger steffens yeah i now this is a treat for us and for our listeners because we probably have america's leading expert in bob marley and reggae music with us uh this is very exciting um Oh my gosh! <laughs> when you when you go to list his credits, it, it's unbelievable the the number of things he has done and places he's been. Uh, but he's here with us because he wrote a a book um, that has a song from Exodus in the title. So much things to say. The oral history of Bob Marley, uh, which we read in preparation for this, and it is phenomenal. If if you like to read uh, biographies or oral histories about about music. This is a must. All right. And if you and if not, and you're just a big Bob Marley fan, this is certainly a must read. All right. So this this is a, a huge honor uh, to have him here. And I'm excited for, for people to get to get to listen. So we're going to take a break. We're going to let you hear from today's sponsor, Anchor. We're also going to share with you our independent record store of the week. And then we will be back with author, reggae expert, Roger Steffens. Hey, this is Rob, and I'm so excited to share with you our independent record store of the week, Seattle, Washington's own Zion's Gate Records. Zion's Gates Records is located at 1100 East Pike Street in Seattle. You can reach them by phone at 206-568-5446. You can reach them on the web at zionsgate.com. Zion's Gate is one of the best reggae record stores in America. They specialize in UK dub, house music, drum and bass, reggae jungle, and hip-hop, but they are a specialty shop when it comes to reggae. 
If you're in the Pacific Northwest, you need to make Zion's Gate Records your home for reggae music. And if you are looking online, you can find their entire inventory on their Discogs page when you reach them at zionsgate.com. Consider picking up Bob Marley and the Whalers Exodus from Zion's Gate Records today. guys are too young to remember him but there was a wonderful double talk artist stand-up comic in the 40s and 50s and 60s who was on ed sullivan's show all the time called professor or Irwin corey world's foremost expert and he he spoke in double talk and, and you <laughs> kind of follow what he said and it was hysterically funny and he ended up every one of his bits with this look this may not be the truth but let us use it as a fact <laughs> First of all, I was born uh, in 1942 on June 17th, the day before Paul McCartney. I'm one day older than Paul. And I was born in Brooklyn, lived there till I was nine. Then my family moved uh, to New Jersey, just over the George Washington Bridge uh, to Bergen County, where my father's family had lived since the 1600s. And um, I grew, I'm first generation rock and roll. I was 14 in 1954 when Rock Around the Clock was number one. And uh, the great disc jockey of all time, uh, the king of rock and roll, Alan Freed, came to New York. And I had already been listening to him on a black station that he was syndicated to from his home base in Cleveland in 1953. So uh, a year later, he came to New York and completely revolutionized radio in New York. Within three weeks of him starting to play rock and roll on WINS, three major radio stations changed their formats to all rock and roll in less than a month. And he used to throw these gigantic shows three times a year for 10-day runs, uh, Christmas, Easter, and Labor Day. And my first rock and roll show, I was 15. It was uh, uh, Christmas of 1957. Um Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, Buddy Holly and the Crickets, Teenage Everly Brothers, Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, and about seven or eight other acts, and a movie for two fifty. <laughs> Can't even buy a bottle of water for two fifty now. So that was my introduction. The next summer in uh, Brooklyn, I saw two more shows uh, and added to those people. Um, one of the greatest live performers of all time, Jackie Wilson, the guy from whom everybody from Prince and Michael Jackson took their moves and James Brown, they all were copying uh, uh, Jackie Wilson. He had a song called That Is Why I Love Her So. She thrills me so I do a back over flip and the mother did it without even bending his knees. In the middle of the song, just flipped over backwards, came right in on cue. Right lips, me so I turn a back over flip.
In the 60s, I started a radio show in 1961. My first guest was Olatunji, the great Nigerian drummer whose record um, uh, Drums of Passion has never been off the charts uh, or out of print since 1958. And uh, he ended up touring with the Grateful Dead in later years with Mickey Hart on the Planet Drum Tour and founded a, a school of African drumming in Harlem that I think exists to this day. Wow. So that was my first interview in 1961. I had a talk show on WVOX in, in, in New Rochelle, New York. And um, I, I'm basically an actor. I had a drama scholarship to college. I, I started acting professionally in 1964. Uh, 65, I was in Milwaukee uh, as a member of the resident company of the Milwaukee Repertory Theater. And I started a one-man show on Valentine's Day in 1966 when I was invited to a black high school to read poetry to the students at 8.30 in the morning. So I read beatniks like Ferlinghetti and Corso and an exterminator poet in Milwaukee named Bob Watt who exterminated poets by telling them to leave. I mean, exterminated cockroaches <laughs> as a Freudian slip. And I did that show on and off for the next 11 years from September to May. I was in a different city each week all over the country. Uh, poetry for people who hate poetry. And I got drafted in 67, almost beat them. On the verge of my 25th birthday, I got drafted when I was artist in residence at a woman's college in St. Louis. And um, I enlisted for an extra year because I believed the recruiter when he said he'd give me a job in radio and television, and they didn't have any stations in Vietnam. But of course, that's exactly where they sent me in psychological operations to carry 80 pounds of loudspeaker backpacks into combat, broadcasting pre-recorded surrender messages on cassettes to the Viet Cong. And there were 52 families living in sewer pipes on the street in front of my barracks. And I'd wake up in the morning, there'd be corpses on the sidewalk. And I wrote to a, a town in Wisconsin, Racine, where I had spoken two or three times at each of the schools and everybody knew me. And uh, they published my letter in the local paper along with an editorial urging support for refugee relief, send me food and clothing. And I gave my word that I would personally distribute it. And three weeks later, two five-ton trucks pulled into the compound with my mail, all these little small packages all addressed to me. And I was the colonel's typist of all things. And I went in and I told him I was going to send it all back because I was too busy typing his letters. And instead, he promoted me to spec four, like corporal, gave me my own Quonset hut, told me I could go anywhere in Vietnam, work on any project from the DMZ to the Delta, as long as I thought it was worthwhile, and took pictures. So that's wow. how I learned to be a photographer. And I shot over 10,000 frames over the 26 months that I was in country. Mm. And um, came back, lectured against the war for a year, didn't want to be an American anymore. I moved to the, the Medina in Marrakesh and. Uh, in 1971, my first wife was a war correspondent I met on the island of the Coconut Monk, an island of thousands of pacifists led by a four and a half foot tall hunchback monk who dropped out of the war. Anybody who came to the island without a weapon uh, was welcomed. And uh, we were adventurers. We lived in the, in the Medina. And uh, after a year, I, I realized that I liked indoor plumbing <laughs> and, and hot water. So uh, we came back to the States. 
1973, I got divorced, and um, so did a friend of mine, a Vietnam War correspondent named Tim Page, who was the guy that Dennis Hopper plays in Apocalypse Now. And we lived together for two years. That was pretty exciting because that was the same year in 73 that I got turned on to reggae. I read an article in Rolling Stone by a gonzo journalist from Australia named Michael Thomas, who said reggae music crawls into your bloodstream like some vampire amoeba from the psychic rapids of upper Niger consciousness. Wow, I said, I don't know what that means, but I got to find it right now. I was living in Berkeley. I went out and found a used copy of Catch a Fire, uh, the one that opened like the Zippo lighter. And my life changed forever. The next night I saw The Harder They Come in a tiny theater. And when the chalice scene came, when everybody was smoking the chalice, everybody in the theater lit a joint and you couldn't see the screen for all the smoke in the theater. And then on the way home that night, I bought the soundtrack to The Harder They Come. Went to Jamaica with my, my current wife, I, 46 years now. We met on an acid trip in a pygmy forest in Mendocino under a total eclipse of the moon on Memorial Day, 75, and we've been together since that day. And in 76, we went to Jamaica looking for rare records. And when we arrived in Saigon, in in Kingston, um, it was like being in Saigon during the Tet Offensive. There was a national state of emergency. There were tanks on all the crossroads. Mm -hmm. Everybody was inside, locked up. But I I wanted to find all the records I'd been reading about. And we went to Bob Marley's record shack in a back alley and one of the biggest reggae stars at the time picked my pocket in Tough Gong Records. Two years later in LA, where I moved in 75, I met a man named Hank Holmes. Hank had never left LA in his life, but had 8,000 Jamaican records in 1978. And there's a book uh, that Leroy Pearson and I did called Bob Marley and the Whalers, the definitive discography. And in that, I tell the story of how Hank put this incredible collection together for almost nothing. And it's too long a story to go into, but you guys as record people would really love it. Well, yeah, I already have a follow-up question. Is that all LPs? Is that 45s, acetate? Like uh, In those days, it was uh, singles and albums. Okay. No, uh, the, um, uh, the CD didn't exist then. This is back in 78. So it was just 12-inch and 7-inch records? Yeah, just records. He had 8,000 of them. And I figured with my background in broadcasting and his incredible knowledge and phenomenal collection, we could do a great radio show. And there was no reggae on the air in all of Los Angeles. Really? So we tried for a year to get on the air and everybody said, no, 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 that's, that's nobody likes that music. Nobody's interested in that music. And finally, we went to the Pacifica station, the radical left wing station, which would have been a perfect fit for us. And they wouldn't put us on because we were white playing black music. So in desperation, we went to a little tiny station. Actually, the place, the whole station was smaller than the room I'm sitting in, <laughs> and, uh, including the transmitter. And it had 110 watts, but great plans to grow. And it was a national public radio outlet at Santa Monica College, although it wasn't run as a college station. And um, that was KCRW. And they really? On, yeah, that, they put us on in uh, October of 1979. And within a few months, we were the top rated non-commercial radio show in Los Angeles. 
and our first guest was Bob Marley. We were on the air for about seven weeks when Island Records called us up and said, would you mind going on the road for two weeks with Bob Marley? <laughs> you can imagine our reply. And uh, we did. <laughs> we traveled all over Southern California with him and got to spend a lot of time. I, I put together two evenings when he wasn't uh, performing and we showed him two films about the most important events in his life that he had never seen before. The first evening was Jeff Walker's, his former publicist's film on the Smile Jamaica assassination attempt and concert. And the second night was um, Jim Lewis and Randy Torno's Heartland Reggae, which was being edited at the time in LA. That's the, the One Love Peace concert film when he unites Manly and Siaga and makes them shake hands in front of 40,000 people. So uh, the reggae beat grew and grew. And in 1980, I helped start a TV show called LA Reggae, which ran for 23 years with Chili Charles, a director and, and drummer from Trinidad. And in 1982, a woman named Cece Smith and I started what became the Beat Magazine, the Reggae and African Beat Magazine, the Reggae Beat Magazine, but it ended up as the Beat. And that ran for 27 years. And I, I edited uh, 27 editions of its annual Bob Marley uh, Collector Edition. Um, and then in 1984, I was asked to found the Reggae Grammy Committee, and I served as chairman of that for 27 years. I was the first speaker at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I've done nine shows there, played the EMP in Seattle, um, Harvard. I've lectured at Harvard and Stanford and Newcastle Opera House in England and, and Newcastle, uh, Australia. And it just goes on and, and on. But you, you get an idea. I've, I've been passionate about it. And then all the while, in order to make a living, I've been an actor and primarily a voiceover actor. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Can't Hardly Wait high school film. It, it has come up actually on this podcast before. Has it really? Well, you know who I am? I am the love jock. Oh, you are tickling love so, so much right you, now. You, you, I, 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 we could, we could just stop right now because we could. Oh my gosh, I, you, you have. Oh, I'm 79. No, no, but you, so I, I love your book. I, I love the role that you've played in, in, in helping bring so much reggae music to so many Americans. Um, but on, on a deeply personal level, I, I, I could probably can do all of it. We'll be back with the man alone himself. At nine o'clock tonight, a full hour of Mandy all the time with the love job. Wow, that's incredible. So let, let me go back because there's so many questions there. Okay. Your life has, has been largely defined by, since 1976 at least, reggae music. So for you personally... Not not just here's what you read in the Rolling Stone article or or here's what drove you to it. For you personally, what is it about reggae music that speaks to you? Well, going back to the fact that I'm first generation rock and roll, in the 50s, I was madly in love with the vocal harmony groups, the doo-wop groups, the exquisite harmonies, the flamingos and the platters and the penguins and all the bird groups, the orioles, you know. Um, and then in the 60s, when the folk music filled that three-year period between the Paola death of rock and roll and 
and and the Beatles' arrival. If it weren't for the folk music and Motown and Phil Spector, there wouldn't have been much worth listening to. And I and I love the the political uh, contents of, of the folk music that gave us Bob Dylan and Phil Oaks and all those great 60s preachers. And by the seven, 1970, most of those small labels had been bought up by the majors and the whole music business deracinated and, uh, you know, it turned into a lot of crap, disco and crap like that. And I was looking for something to reignite my musical passion that would unite the exquisite harmonies of doo-wop with the consciousness of Dylan. And when I read that article in Rolling Stone and found Bob and Jimmy, and then Berkeley had a lot of great record stores that had British imports, so I was getting the Trojan label stuff immediately. But even better, we had a, a, a Jamaican record store on Fillmore Street in San Francisco in 1973, run by a guy called Ruel Mills, who had been a spar of Bob's in Kingston. And he didn't have a big stock, but he had Count Ossie and the Mystic Revelation of Rastafari. He had Ross Michael and the Sons of Negus. These groups that you'd buy just for the name on the cover. You didn't even care what the music was. And that's where I first heard Joe Higgs and Slim Smith and uh, the Techniques and Alton Ellis, and all these incredible singers and writers. So uh, he took several of us under his wing, Lance Linares in Santa Cruz and Doug Went in San Francisco. And they became major figures on the West Coast radio. In fact, uh, Doug still has a, a place on, on the internet. Duppy Doug Went, the goner who goes there. And uh, we, we learned a lot. We were eventually taken into the back room at Trenchtown Records by Ruel Mills, where he also had an, uh, a separate business. And he would turn us <laughs> on to music at the same time he was operating his separate business. And uh, we learned a lot about the music from that point. So reggae, when I heard reggae, it was the answer to my dreams. <laughs> and seeing the harder they come, Oh, my God, to think that those are the conditions under which this ethereally beautiful music is made and all these poor people getting ripped off all the time and still maintaining some kind of positive attitude, positive and constructive. Those are bywords for Rastafari. I just wanted to learn everything I possibly could about Bob Marley, about the music and all the things it leads to, Ethiopia, Selassie, the Bible. I knew nothing about the Bible because I was raised Catholic and had 15 miseducated years in the Catholic school system. So I knew nothing about the Bible. And so I learned about the Bible and about Jamaican politics and history. And, um, I'm still learning 48 years later. You have written, this isn't just our opinion, this is, I mean, 
nearly every review of 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 this book seems to say the same thing maybe the definitive multifaceted biography that that has been written about bob marley in your book <laughs> so much things to say the oral history of of bob marley obviously there's a huge relationship here to reggae and obviously the fact that you have met bob marley and spent time with him and and, and had some of that relationship. What was the inspiration then after years of relationship, not just to Bob Marley and to other people in, in the reggae world, but what ultimately was the inspiration to write this book or maybe to say to finally write this book? Because it sounds like this is something that was brewing in you for a long time. It's my seventh book about him, but it is the one that sums up my life of research. I figured out once that it was 43 years of research, 36 years of interviews, and 15 years of writing. Um, wow. Rolling Stone, which I have every issue of since the very first, which I bought the day before I shipped to Vietnam in a bookstore in Berkeley and subscribed the minute I got to Saigon. So I have a 53-year run of, of Rolling Stone. Wow. Rolling Stone headlined its review of the book and there are over 700 Bob Marley books. This might be the best Bob Marley book ever. They said it was a landmark and definitive. And I'll tell you, I, I almost passed out <laughs> when I read that. Um, yeah, and thank you for your kind words too. So what I was trying to do with this book initially when I sold the idea to Norton, who had published two of my previous books, uh, the book I did with Bruce Talaman called Bob Marley Spirit Dancer and the book I did with Lee Jaffe called One Love My Life with Bob Marley and the Whalers. Um, I said, I have 110 interviews with people who were involved with Bob Marley. And I would like to preserve them for history as the raw material for historians and publish the full interview I did with each of these people. They agreed to that and gave me a nice advance. And I worked on it for about three years when I had a massive computer crash. It took all my notes, all my transcripts, everything I had written so far, ate up everything. I couldn't get it back. And for the next couple of years, I was just in despair. I couldn't even tell Norton. And finally, my editor, Jim Mars, called me in, I think it was 2007, and said, where's my book? And I had to tell him what happened. And he was so nice, he says, well, just get back to work again and you know, send me the first draft when you're done. So that took another five or six years to, first of all, do the transcripts all over again, which is the most painful work, especially if you're dealing with people who talk patois. So it took me you know, th three or four more years to transcribe all the damn interviews again. And I finally sent the manuscript to him, I think it was somewhere around 2012. Um, and I, I, I whittled it down to 75 interviews. And he wrote back and said, um, this is not going to work. We'd like you to take the classic format of an oral history book. For example, if you're talking about the Smile Jamaica assassination attempt, take all the people who talked about it and put their words into that chapter, you know. So I had to start all over again, again. In the midst of that, my editor died. 
And in the law of unintended consequences, something wonderful happened because the man who took over for me was a young senior editor at Norton named Tom Mayer. And Tom used to be a reggae disc jockey at, at Columbia University on WKCR. And I was on KCRW on the other coast. <laughs> and he actually had his own ska band in New York City. So he knew the subject. And he pulled the book apart. He gave me questions to answer. He told me how to format it right. And he just completely deconstructed and reconstructed the book. And if this book has had any success, I give the maximum respect to Tom Mayer because he's the guy who made it happen and happened properly. Well, it's, it's interesting you bring that up because we do want to ask this question, help us as much as possible to kind of define what what is reggae? What is 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 there a kind of unique characteristic or way to define this genre, or is the genre as wide and diverse as the you people know, I, of the area? I face that question every year when I was chairman of the Reggae Grammy Committee those twenty seven years because it, it evolved every year. I mean, then dancehall came in, and then the electronica, and is that reggae? Is ska reggae? Is rock steady reggae? Is dub reggae? You know, what is it? And and so we basically just referred to reggae after a while as Jamaican music. That, that was the only way we could, we could really handle it. There was a big push, especially among Jamaicans, for us to uh, cut the category in half between da dancehall and, and uh, roots reggae. And the year that we wanted to try to convince them to do that, we walked into the meeting and they told us they were canceling the committee for lack of entries. So we had to fight to hold that one category and it never was separated. But let's let's just talk about basics. Basically, Jamaican music is based on the heartbeat. So you've got the, the double time, almost umpaska uh, version of the earliest music, which was a conscious creation at the time of Jamaican independence in the early 60s. They wanted a music that wasn't soca, which is Trinidadian. They wanted a Jamaican music. So they kind of invented ska, is how they pronounce it, like there's a Y in it, ska. And that's ska, 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 ska. And it has a lot of revivals. In 1980, the two-tone movement in England revived it. In the 90s, we had groups in California like Let's Go Bowling playing American ska. There's a whole bunch of ska bands in LA now. Um, Ska is great for really young people because it's this frenetic beat and people like to dance really fast. But when you get a little older, <laughs> as Jamaicans started to do in the mid-60s, uh, the music transformed for the next two years from 66 to 68 into rock steady. But it's still heartbeat. It's just the tempo that changes. And then reggae was born in 1968. And that's uh, chaka, chaka. Chaka, chaka, and all the variations that come out of that, the drum and bass of Sly and Robbie, the rockers, rhythms, and of course, uh, the, uh, uh, the dub music led to DJ music and rapping, skanking, toasting over, over dub tracks. So it's a wide variety of music. But to me, what I love, what keeps my attention after all these years is what I would refer to as classic roots reggae. And that is, it is message music. It is music that exists for a higher purpose. 
There are other forms like the British uh, developed uh, reggae music, but it had no Rastafarian overtones whatsoever or political overtones, and they called it Lover's Rock. And that's the title of a five film series currently on Netflix that I recommend everyone should see, especially the episode called Lover's Rock, which is filled with fantastic sound systems. Uh, in fact, Dennis Bovell, the backing band for Lyndon Quezzy Johnson, is, is in the film. Uh, and it really talks about the Windrush generation of Jamaicans who were uh, lured to England to take low-class jobs in the 60s and 70s and what happened to that whole generation. So uh, you, you, mentioned, you mentioned this idea, and, and I think it's, it's worth connecting us to because reggae music, and then Bob Marley specific, specifically within that, there's something within this music that is attractive to people all over the world. And, and, and as a positive music all over the world, Bob Marley became, for, for a long period of time, the only profitable artist on Island's Re- Island Records repertoire. I, I mean, he, he, he was commercially successful. Mm-hmm. And with that, also, be, you know, with that commercial success, also comes the reality that here is someone who, who is singing about something who who is who has a message that may not be as easy to understand or as easy to swallow for much of the middle and upper class world especially the western world what are the ways in which bob experienced those pressures to maybe change that message or or to or to to tamp that message down some but he didn't I mean, the next to the last album he made was Survival, the most militant album of his entire life and maybe his best album, um, because it is the essence of his mature philosophy. It's after he was shot by people he knew who he was helping. And he realized that the philosophy espoused on his other most militant album, his first solo album, Natty Dread, when he feels like bombing a church because the preacher is lying. He realizes now after he was shot that, you know, an eye for an eye just makes everybody blind, that old cliche. And if you're really going to change the world, you must change yourself and that will radiate outward. And that's what one love is all about. It's not about shooting violence. It's about opening your heart to others and feeling that empathy, that sympathy. And he was the most empathetic of all people. He supported as much as 6,000 people a month, according to his manager. Yeah. yeah, let's get into that because that was one of my favorite parts of the book that Bob Marley would basically just uh, sit in his house and invite people right as a, as on Hope Road. Yeah. And 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 people would come to visit him and they would say, "Hey, um I'm trying to start like a like a coconut oil business." And he's just <laughs> like 
<laughs> that said, sounds yeah, great. Absolutely. I always wanted to be in the oil business. He wrote him a big check. <laughs> yeah, green green lights it says here you go, small business loan basically. Yeah. Uh, but not expecting to get anything back, right? And no. then people, you know, hey, I need help um burying a family member. No problem. Signs the check. And would do this for the whole community, really, is what it sounds like. As he said, his life was no good unless he could help other people. Yeah, I mean, look look at what these rap stars do with their money. They buy six Lamborghinis and they buy quarter million dollar necklaces and stuff. Bob went on stage in the dungarees that he was wearing in the daytime. You know, he had no pretensions whatsoever. He was a man of the people. And if he could find a way to help people, that made him, that's what really made him feel good. He gave away almost all the money he made. He never had a house of his own till the day he died. He bought probably three dozen houses for other people. Yet in the book, you also write about the relationship with the whalers when it comes to when it comes to money yeah. and and some of that just and, and again bob clearly through the course of his life it was about helping people and and even you you do a great job of this the the members of his band that you interview they talk about his generosity during the course of his life do you associate the way the publishing deals went down that ultimately led to so many of the whalers kind of having nothing after Bob's death was, was that just simply a a lack of understanding for, for everyone involved of, of kind of how money was made in, in, in the music business. Do Do you associate that to more ignorance on Bob Marley's part or, or was that kind of a decision that was made by him to control that money during his lifetime? I think, I think it was bad advice. You know, the, the wife cut him, cut the band off as soon as Bob died. They used to get 50% of all the uh, touring royalties. And uh, that was given to Family Man, and he divided up um, the way he thought it would be fairest among the rest of the band members, the ones who contributed more than others, got more than others. But they were handsomely recompensed, and he bought houses for a lot of them, and you know, uh, but Rastafarians don't like to deal with Babylonian contracts. Hmm. And he had a, a manager who was skimming all kinds of stuff off. And uh, they they had uh, a face-off when Bob went in January of 1980 to play in Gabon. And um, he, he, he was ill-served by his medical advisors and by his f- financial advisors. And you know, that's why my book ends with Bob's passing. Yeah. It's such a sad story after that. Well, let's, let's focus then for the, the, the main reason that we have you on is because we have for the podcast, we have chosen Exodus by Bob Marley and the Whalers as our pick as one of the greatest albums of all time and our choice of all of the really phenomenal Bob Marley albums, both solo albums and Bob Marley and the Whaler albums, we have chosen, of all the work that he did, we have chosen Exodus as not just the best, but the best representation of, of Bob Marley, of who he was, of, of, of what he was trying to bring to the world through his music. And 
And there is a lot for our listeners to understand. And you write about this in the book and in, in the chapters preceding your chapter on Exodus and then the chapters that follow. But I, I wonder if you could, for our listeners, help us understand the Smile Reggae concert and the assassination attempt. His, essentially, his, his, his leaving the writing and recording of Exodus in Kaya and then ultimately returning to Jamaica for the One Love Peace concert. Can can you can you give us kind of just an overview? Also for our listeners, because we, we we are given our guests such a huge task here. <laughs> he is um, featured prominently in a Netflix documentary that is an hour long. That is just about the assassination. That yep. is uh, that's uh, pretty thorough. It's just an hour long, but it's it's really just about that event. Um, so I, you know, whatever we can't get to tonight, um, you can, you can find him again there in that documentary that that's very thorough and goes through, um, the, the election cycle that's happening in Jamaica this time in the, in the, the sociopolitical context of everything. Um, so whatever yeah. we can't get to there, you can yeah. find Roger there in that documentary, uh, who shot the sheriff. It, it's right? called who shot Bob Marley. It's on Netflix. Yeah. Okay. So. Bob starts recording as a soloist in 1962. His two singles flop. The Brailers start recording in June of 64. Uh, and for the next two and a half, three years, they are never off the Jamaican charts. They record about 100 tracks for a producer called Cox and Dodd. And they never get paid more than three pounds a week, even when they're selling tens of thousands of records in the course of a week. Um, and then in 68, they meet uh, Johnny Nash and his manager, Danny Sims, a mafioso, a self-proclaimed gangster. He tried to break Bob internationally. They signed him as a writer also for Johnny Nash, who had a lot of hits with Marley material, but they could never get any hits with Bob. Finally, uh, Danny sells the contract to uh, Chris Blackwell at Island Records, and, I, and Chris breaks him big. And by 1976, Bob is a major star. He's not a superstar yet, but he's a major star. He can sell out concert halls in, in Europe. For a long time, Bob doesn't perform in Jamaica. And finally, at the end of 1976, wants to do a free concert for the people. But before he has a chance to announce it, Prime Minister Socialist Michael Manley puts up posters saying that he's going to do a free concert on the Prime Minister's lawn. And elections are coming up later that year, and it would appear that Bob would be supporting the re-election of Michael Manley. And that's a good way to get yourself killed in Jamaica by identifying with a politician. So he goes to talk to Manley, and uh, Manley says, well, you can have Heroes Park Circle in, in uh, Kingston, and it won't be a political event. And Bob says, okay. And then right after that, Prime Minister Manley announces that national elections will be held right after the concert. And by his presumed appearance on stage with Bob that night, it'll look like Bob is endorsing his re-election. So Bob immediately becomes the target of uh, assassination attempt uh, or rumors. You know, you're not going to do that concert. If you do, we're going to kill you. So he's placed under 24-7 guard. And the concert is scheduled for Sunday, December 5th, 1976. And on Friday, the 3rd of December, uh, Bob is rehearsing in his headquarters when 
depending on who you talk to, one or two carloads of uh, mostly teenage gunmen break through the door, shoot Bob's wife in the head as she's driving out, and start shooting everybody in sight. Um, Bob is shot across the chest and a bullet lodges in his left arm while he's peeling a grapefruit. And his manager on the other side of the room is shot five times in the groin and somehow miraculously survives that. Bob goes into hiding, ironically, at Chris Blackwell's home in the hills above Kingston and is advised by almost everybody not to go down and perform what is called the Smile Jamaica concert on that Sunday night because the assassins will certainly come to this outdoor event and and finish their work. But his publicist, Jeff Walker, from Island Records, an American, said, you have got to go down and perform, Bob, or else it will be just the same as if they had killed you that night. And he says, well, I'm not going down there without a weapon. And Jeff said, Bob, your guitar is your machine gun. And something clicked. And at that point, a car pulls up and Rita Marley jumps out. She was in the hospital for two nights and couldn't stand it anymore. She had a bullet lodged in her scalp. And she stole a car from the parking lot and drove up to Bob's hiding place. And... um, Bob said, okay, baby, we're going to go down and do a concert. And they jump in the police chief's car and go down to Heroes Park Circle, where there are 80,000 people waiting to see if he's going to show up. And that night, it was just a pickup band. Uh, Half the musicians and the whalers were too afraid to come. And they enlisted Third World and Ross Michael and some other people. And Rita sang back up to Bob for almost 90 minutes, wearing a hospital gown with a bloody bandage at her head with a bullet lodged in her skull. Bob is singing with a bullet lodged in his arm. What in popular music history can you compare that moment to? Woodstock? It rained at Woodstock. People got mud on their (laughs) shoes. Nothing. There's no moment in popular music history that is even close to that moment. And that was the night that Bob went from showman to shaman. That was a historic night. takes a brief exile in in the Bahamas where Chris Blackwell had a studio. Then he goes to England where he spends almost all of 1977 with his lover, uh, the current Miss World at that time, Cindy Breakspear, a white Jamaican woman. And um, he decides to go into the studio for almost five months of work 
and records 30 tracks. And those tracks were used uh, on several albums, but basically all of Exodus in 77 and Kaya in 78 were done at the same time. And uh, Exodus was roundly praised and people were really upset when he released Kaya because they thought it was just love songs and he'd gone soft despite the appearance of songs like Ambush in the Night, you know. Bob really concentrated on, on his music and it was called at the turn of the century by Time Magazine, the album of the century, the best album of the 20th century. And they wrote, every song is a classic from the message of love to the anthem of revolution. But more than that, the album is a political and cultural nexus, drawing inspiration from the third world and then giving voice to it the world over. Hmm. There's something that I find especially interesting about Exodus. And for me, the reason that it is my favorite Bob Marley album is something that I couldn't have put my, I wouldn't have been able to tell you before reading your book. That's the thing that I love about it, but reading your book, it's, it's, it really jumps out to me, which is junior Marvin. It, it is, it's, it's, it is the most guitar centric of of the Bob Marley albums and not just Junior Marvin but what you write about in the book is that essentially Bob Junior Marvin and and Chris Blackwell all essentially a, a, agreed to to drop what amounts to about $100,000 to completely remix the album to put the guitars more prominent in the mix which was really uncommon at that point for, for a reggae album. Yeah, there, there weren't lead guitars in reggae music. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that was a major turning point. It was more a pop album uh, than, than a real roots reggae album. Uh, it was a highly polished album. It didn't sound like any other reggae album that anybody had ever made. Yeah. And it was partly because he wanted a bigger sound because he was going to start playing huge venues. So he wanted uh, that lead guitar sound that, uh, you know, Jimi Hendrix had provided years earlier and uh, didn't mind that. You know, it's, uh, even Peter Tosh talked about this as music that could be played with a thousand pieces. Um, and, you know, he, he took a lot of flack for that because most, most roots reggae is pretty stripped down. But Bob had a wider audience in mind. It wasn't just Jamaicans. I, I, I agree with you that it is also a pop album. But what what I like about I think Exodus and what what makes it what makes it stick out is that there is a real side one side two kind yeah. of thing happening. You know, side side one is much more the roots reggae. Yeah. The mix is very different. Like the, the mix on Natural Mystic is not like the anything you're going to hear on side two. No, like the kick drum and the bass is so loud. A natural mystic and and um on the track exodus i mean the bass is pounding when you listen to it like on a big sound system
And then side two is much more, someone in the book calls it his like lover boy phase. <laughs> um, so it's very much that, but also jamming, you know, just like a nice party track, you know? So, but, but it is like the, the both sides of, of Bob Marley. It, it is the political and the spiritual and the romantic, you know, and I, and I love that, that kind of duality. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Micaiah, because um, we don't have sides anymore. Right. We have tracks. We don't have a record you can hold in your hand. How do you autograph a download? <laughs> right. So uh, records, you know, Blackwell is the guy who uh, put the tracks in the order that they appear on the Exodus album. They left it up to him. Really? So he, yeah, he built that uh, very specifically to to have two different sides, and and it's a wonderful story about Natural Mystic because you know when you drop the needle on the record, it's really soft, mm-hmm. and it's gets a little bit louder, and then a little bit louder. And he wanted people to drop the needle on their record players and think that it was too soft. So they would turn their volume way up so that when it really kicks in, it's so loud, you can't miss it. <laughs> it's one of the cleverest things Chris ever did. <laughs> so should we talk about the album? Yeah, let's get into it. Well, a lot of what I'm going to share with you uh, came from my rereading today, the Exodus chapter of a marvelous book by a brilliant uh, Ghanaian Jamaican poet and professor Kwame Dawes. It's called mm. Bob Marley Lyrical Genius. And he deconstructs the entire island period of Bob Marley's work. And being a poet, he has a special insight into things. So some of what I'm going to tell you now are direct quotes from, from his book. But uh, he, he writes about this better than almost anybody I've ever read. So the album starts off with, um, of course, Natural Mystic. Um, Bob felt it was important at that time, right after the assassination and his exile abroad, to to cool down the rhetoric, to help people to see the beauty of life and to take them away from the ideas of war and strife. Um, Blackwell made the track order. He placed the militant songs, as you said, Micaiah, uh, and the songs that dealt directly with the memory of the assassination attempt, along with Bob Marley's spiritual answer on side two, to that experience. Uh, well, no, I'm saying it wrong. Uh, the, the militant songs, side one, side two, were some of his key love songs and songs of hope. So you had that balance in there. Mm-hmm. Um, these were uh, apocalyptic times in, in Kingston. Haile Selassie had been reported dead uh, about a year and a half earlier. Uh, culture was prophesying about the two sevens clash. He he shut down the entire country of Jamaica on the 7th of July, 1977. Parliament recessed, people didn't go to work. Everybody thought that something cataclysmic was going to happen. Um, And to a lot of Jamaicans, the fact that Bob Marley himself had abandoned the island as so many tens of thousands of people had been doing in those recent years was another sign that the end was near. Kwame says his lyrics were moments of sublime poetry, rich with metaphor, thick with illusions, elevated by biblical references, and fired by passion and energy. He was sorting through the complexities of love and the terrible realization that betrayal was possible. It was friends of Bob's that came to kill him, people he'd been giving money to. Exodus and Kaya both share the theme of exile, 
and messages of an artist back to his homeland. So natural mystic, that soft open prompts raising the sound on the stereo, as I said, uh, in it he admits he has no answers for what appear to be the end times and that he will tell no lie. This natural mysticism is his balance of songs of anger and revenge and songs about sexual love and communal love, love of his people. Some of his made-up words always, always amuse me. He has so much things to say, which happens to be the title of my book and other people's books, too. Um, he uses words like innocency and ignorancy. So much things to say. It's a song about the rumors that people were spreading about him and that the attack on him was like things that had happened to greater people than he. Jesus Christ, Marcus Garvey, Paul Bogle. Ogle was a rebel in the 1860s who was betrayed by the Maroons to the British and hung. It's a verse deeply rooted in St. Paul's letters of, of defiance in 1 Corinthians. Um, I, I found it interesting in re-listening to the album today that there was no pause between so much things to say and guiltiness went mm. right into another without, without a second. And that's the only pair of tracks on the album that that happens to. And I, I, I wonder why that was. Um, it's like, almost like a sermon. He wants to keep it going. Um, guiltiness, another made up word, it's guilt. Um, the song is a curse on the downpressers who turn everything into material that can be consumed. But rather than taking arms, Bob's music becomes his weapon against them a change since the assassination attempt. Jaw will bring justice. It's not up to Bob. Then we go into the heathen with those almost psychedelic licks from Junior Marvin on that. that that's mm -hmm. really wiggy guitar that he plays on that. And it sounds almost like a vocorder on the chorus of movement of jaw people. The heathen's backs are up against the wall in these final times. And it ends with three kind of false fade-outs, which I always found interesting, too. I wonder why they did that. They just kind of sneak in almost subliminally. The heathen, here's an interesting point, and I was told this by Marcia Griffiths herself, one of the I3. Um, the heathen's backing vocals were done by Marcia alone, triple-tracking herself. Hmm. Uh, Judy and Rita were upset with Bob at that time because Bob was running around with Cindy Breakspear and they didn't want to sing on the album. So Blackwell brought Marcia Griffiths in to triple track the backings that sound like the I3. Hmm. And then we come to the title track and that's a rockers track. That's a music that was being developed at that time in um, the Channel One studio by Jojo Hookham with Sly and Robbie as the revolutionaries. Um, flying cymbal and heavy drum and bass. Um, the song is a statement, Exodus. It's a statement of Bob's faith in Rasta, and it's about exile and repatriation. This great desire to repatriate to Africa, particularly Ethiopia, was at full strength at that time in the mid-70s. The idea of a promised land was the key to Rasta beliefs. For Bob, the time for Exodus was now, right this second, right there in the mid-70s. We're leaving Babylon, he sang, which is a Western world.
Now, side two is very different. As, as you pointed out, uh, Micaiah, uh, jamming that dance track, that's irresistible track. It's a call to the world to dance joyfully in the inevitable triumph of this movement of good over evil. Bob announced that his music has the capaciousness to ground any other influences he might choose to utilize. Ain't no rules, ain't no vows. It's also a deeply sexual thing. It's boastful too. No bullets can stop them now. And he does not want his people to be bought or sold. In the end, money can't buy life. It's a song about the artist's love for his audience or about his lady and his desire to live life his own way. And it's done in such a, an infectious spirit of joy, jamming. Now, the next track is my all-time favorite Bob Marley song. Mine too. Is it really? Yeah. Uh, it shows your excellent taste, Mr. Stone. <laughs> uh, Lyndon Quezzy Johnson, no less an authority, has said that he thinks Waiting in Bain is the most beautiful love song ever written. And whether it was written by Bob or not is in question because Tyrone Downey told me that he wrote that song years before and he gave it to Bob. And the clue, he said, is Bob was raised in Jamaica and I was raised in England. And that's why we talk about uh, summer is here, winter is here. There's no seasons in Jamaica. They don't have winter, so it was hot. So maybe, maybe the real author of that song was Tyrone Downey. We'll never know. Turn your lights down low. That that's another perfect song to follow. Waiting in vain. It's a, it's a great love song. He's he's not pleading to be uh, listened to and looked at and loved anymore from a reluctant woman. In turn your lights down low. He's flirtatious. He's seductive. The perfect follow up to waiting in vain. Uh, these were part of a cycle of songs that could be compared to the elucidation of romantic stages, as in the Songs of Solomon of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Thinking about a lover, but always returning to praise Jah. The desire for love and comfort from a woman was extremely acute for Bob at this time after he'd been shot, and, and spiritual too. Jah Moon is pouring light into the room where they're making love, offering blessings on the carnal union. But the song's tentative nature is revealed at the end when you're not sure he has succeeded in 
seducing her. And then three little birds. Uh, every kid in the, in the world knows three little birds. Don't you worry about a thing. Every little thing is going to be all right. Um, the three little birds represent the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are assuring him and us that every little thing is going to be all right. Many believe that they also represent the I-3, Rita, Judy, and Marcia, who sang behind him in his last six years of performing. Finally, the anthem of the millennium, One Love. When the BBC filmed uh, in a different time zone at the millennium, millennium's uh, arrival, they went to 24 different countries as the millennium came to those countries. And in every single country, that spot opened with the local people singing One Love as the song that everybody in the world knows. And it was the perfect, perfect anthem for the millennium. Um, it, it was really, as you mentioned earlier, an adaptation of Curtis Mayfield's People Get Ready, whose first version was one of the final songs recorded for Cox and Dodd back in 65. The title phrase captures the various expressions of love, community, personal, and many more. And uh, people to this day never stop singing One Love. I, I heard, I saw a video on the internet of, I think, a um, hundred person Arab choir singing it. And then a performance in Israel where Jews and Arabs got together on a single stage and sang it all together, one love. So maybe that is the best album he ever made. I, I would suggest also Natty Dread and Survival. Yeah, so, you know, I have no, no objection to being counted among people who would say Exodus is his finest album, but I think right up there with it, our survival and, uh, and, and Dread. yeah, the bookends yeah. of its militancy. We've talked about the assassination attempt and still performing at the small reggae concert. Talked about this sense of exile to England while recording both Exodus and Kaya. And then he returns after after the assassination attempt, after all the political turmoil, Bob Marley returns to Jamaica for the One Love Peace concert. The time when Bob returned, I've heard it a year and a half, I've heard it 17 months. 
He left Jamaica on December 6th, 1976. He returned in late February, 1978. So that's, that's 14 months. He was gone 14 months. Um, the whole thing with the One Love Peace concert that he returned to do, I've got four chapters about the assassination attempt and the aftermath, and including uh, a whole chapter devoted to uh, Carl Colby Jr., who's been accused of setting up the assassination attempt, which is such a terrible calumny. I felt so bad for the guy. Bob, Bob comes back to prepare for the One Love Peace concert, which is being put together by the, some of the baddest men in the Jamaican ghettos, the, the heaviest gunmen, people who killed countless other people. And they sign a peace truce between the gangs of the Jamaican Labor Party, which is <laughs> the right wing, and the People's National Party, which is Manley's uh, Socialist Party. And to cement it, they're going to throw the One Love Peace Concert, named after Bob's song. And they want Bob to return to Jamaica to headline it after he meets with some of the worst gunmen in London and gets their assurance that he will be safe upon his return. He reluctantly returns to Jamaica and prepares to do the concert. And at the end of the concert, after about eight hours of all kinds of performers, he decides to call on stage at the end of his set Prime Minister Manley and the opposition leader, Edward Siaga, who they refer to locally as CIAGA for his work with the CIA since the 1960s, maybe earlier when he went to Harvard. At the end of the show, Bob calls them on stage and nobody knows if they're going to come. Almost immediately, Siaga is pulled up on the stage by some of these gangsters. And Bob keeps waiting for Manley to come on stage. And finally, he gives up and he turns around to Edward Siaga, whose forces were the people who came to kill him, brings him to the mic and they turn around and they see walking toward them across the stage, Michael Manley. And Bob is beside himself. He's leaping up and down. You see the pictures of him. Uh, and he, he grabs their hands and he makes them shake hands and he holds their hands aloft in a benediction to Rastafari. Love, prosperity, be with us all. Yeah, Rastafari. And that's the moment that his art director, Neville Garrick, says was like Christ on the cross between the two thieves. And I had the great honor of showing that footage to Bob the first time he ever saw it, which wasn't until a year and a half later when I was traveling with him in, in November of 79 here in LA. Uh, they were cutting uh, the uh, Heartland Reggae film, which shows the peace concert. Yeah, wow. and it, 
And then the dark side of that is that the truce ends between the gangs. It didn't hold. It yeah. couldn't hold. Roger, it, it has been such a treat, and I, I cannot thank you enough for doing this. We want to conclude our time together tonight in the same way that we ask every guest, which is the whole idea behind this podcast is you forgot one, and Makai and I know for sure that we have forgotten some over uh, over the over the journey. So for you, what are what are some albums that are among the greatest of all time? Well, you got to start with what's going on by Marvin. One of the greatest pieces of music, eternally timely, brilliant. Love it to death. All right, so that's that's one. Two would be Elvis Presley's Sun Sessions, the, the very birth of rock and roll, the greatest Elvis album of all time. Three, uh, an album that cooled things out for us in the middle of uh, the war was Crosby, Stills, and Nash debut album. Hmm. Perfect harmonies, beautiful music, just ethereally beautiful album that I, I never get tired of playing. And if I had to pick one Bob album, I think it would be Natty Dread. Um, and then uh, out of left field, um, Vuzi Machlesela from South Africa, When You Come Back. You know, I'm the guy who turned Paul Simon on to Ladysmith Black Mambazo. And I think after that, the, the, the next person I felt coming from Africa, who could be, a, who should have been a huge international star is this man. He's got a four octave voice. He's, he's kind of compactly built, but he can do that high kick Zulu dance. Uh, and his album, When You Come Back, is a symphony of the greatest poetry you've ever heard. That album is perfect. There's not a bad track. When You Come Back by Vuzi, M-A-H-L-A-S-E-L-A. And in Zulu, the H is a K sound, so it's Vuzi Maklasela. And my my uh, wild card, an album I saw actually performed in person live at the Village Gate. It was Nina Simone live at the Village Gate in 1960. I saw her there on a rainy Thursday night, and there were only seven people in the in the club. And she sang the whole album for us and even did an encore. That's a classy lady, Nina Simone. Well, Roger, we, uh, we want to thank you so much for, for being with us. Uh, for, for our listeners, Roger is the author of seven books about Bob Marley author, co-author, but, uh, the one that we want to recommend to you is, is maybe the, one of the best musical biographies we have ever read. So much things to say, the oral history of Bob Marley. We want to encourage you to pick that up. And that is going to be available everywhere books are sold. Uh, You can, I mean, believe it or not, it's the kind of book that you can still walk into physical bookstores and find on the shelves. You don't even have to order it on Amazon. You can go to your local independent bookstore and buy it off the shelves. 
Okay, I, I uh, have a website that is run by my daughter, Kate, who is my archivist. So if you go to Instagram, put in the family acid, all one word, uh, almost every day there's a new posting. This year she's trying to post a picture that was taken on the same date in previous years. And uh, there's a lot of reggae on there. Um, Marrakesh, I lived in Morocco for a year. Uh, Jamaica, certainly. The Far East, Australia. There's pictures from all, all over the world. And there's stories about each of the pictures. And there are often some very interesting and funny comments from our, our followers. Uh, and then for people who are interested in, in learning more about the history of the music and, and getting access to music that is just not available anywhere, um, you can write to me directly at rossroja at aol.com. Roja is what Marley used to call me. It wasn't Roger, it was Roja. <laughs> so it's R-A-S-R-O-J-A-H, rossroja at aol.com. And uh, you can say you're requesting a list of my old radio shows that I have available. I've digitized a couple of hundred shows. Uh, we, out, we had the local reggae beat, which was a four-hour show. And then we had an, uh, a syndicated show called Reggae Beat International uh, that was on 130 stations all over the world. We used to get fan mail in Swahili and Urdu. <laughs> Uh, Polish, wow. um, and I, I've got beautifully digitized uh, copies of the entire 178 episodes, hour-long episodes of um, Reggae Beat International that are available. <laughs> this was really fun for me. We, <laughs> we went about double time, but that's, that's fine with me. I, I love sharing. With well, keep keep up your great work, and and let's let's talk again sometime. Maybe we could do a show about non reggae. All right, bye bye. Rob, it was great that that Roger affirmed our pick for best Bob Marley album for our list, but people are still going to be screaming into their headphones or however they listen to our podcast saying, but why not legend? Right. Yeah. It's, it's the, it's the greatest selling reggae album of all time. Mm -hmm. Legend is yes. The legend compilation. And it's, and it's the highest ranking on the Rolling Stone lists. It's been in the 23 and 2012 list. Okay. Legend um, has been number 47 and 48. Right, so even on the updated list, Legend is 48. And in the 2012 Rolling Stone list, Exodus was 169. But in the 2020 list, Exodus went to 71. Yeah. So they're pretty close, right, on the in that list. Each year in like the previous decade, I mean, Legend was one of the top 10 best-selling vinyl records in the last decade. Yeah. In, in so... And maybe that's a fair thing for us to say. If if you're a person who is going to buy one reggae album on vinyl, you you may rightfully pick Legend as the album to buy first. Mm -hmm. For us, I think the reason that we're sticking with Exodus ahead of the compilation, and, and Legend is a wonderful compilation. It might be one of the best, if not the best, like greatest hits 
records. One of them for sure. I, I don't, yeah, one of them for sure. And, and, you know, again, the album we're going to talk about next week, Chuck Berry's Great 28, like mm-hmm. there are other artists for whom we are okay to do a compilation. Even our Smiths episode, we did, you know, we did essentially a compilation. Right. Um, a unique one, but a compilation nonetheless. What is so important to me that I think Roger helped communicate so clearly is that to understand Bob Marley's music, you cannot understand it on the basis of the music alone. That you you have to understand the totality of who Bob Marley was, of what Bob Marley represented, what mm-hmm. he meant for Jamaica. And because of the timing of Exodus, because these are songs written in the aftermath of an assassination attempt. They are songs written essentially during what amounts to a 14-month exile in London. Um, There is a uniqueness to this album that while as, as much as I love Legend, you get a phenomenal compilation in Legend, but you miss out on some of the quality some of some of the for lack of a better term there's there's something mystical in exodus that you are hearing in his writing there's something you're hearing both in response to what happened in jamaica and also what's happening with this kind of short-lived love affair while he's in london with the at the time the reigning miss world that there's such a unique picture of Bob Marley's world that you hear on Exodus that because of the breadth of music that is on legend, you, you miss that in my mind. And so for me, that's why I think Exodus is the choice because you do, you get the largest selection of songs that appear on his greatest hits album so no no other album comes anywhere close to having as many songs Uh -uh. on legend as exodus does but then you also get essentially side a and most of side b is on his greatest hits collection but side a the first four songs on this album are not on legend and these are important songs especially in light of the, the attempt that has just been made on his life. And I think to ignore that would be to miss out on a crucial piece of, of the puzzle that makes Bob Marley, Bob Marley. I agree. And as someone who grew up, you know, just kind of knowing the greatest hits and listening to legend, you know, I, you know, I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, I wanted to say that I grew up as a, as a young kid listening to Bob Marley and loving the music. But then something happened in high school and college where I kind of retreated from his music because it seemed like it had been, like, taken over um, just by, like, snobby, like, middle-class bros or, you know, just, like, white kids who went to college and put up a Bob Marley poster in their shanty dorm and we're just in, in claim Bob for themselves. Should, should we, should we now play a little bit of a, 
of of the Lonely Islands, Ross Trent, an entire song written about said white kids. <laughs> Cue Ross Trent. You know, so yeah, so that that kind of thing, you know, it it, it kind of gets taken over and and by by this group of people, you know, and but then it came to a point again in my adult life where I was I was listening to the music and I was like, man, I why why, why do I care? Like if they if they listen to you know like I, so I I, I like kind of like reclaimed the music for myself. I was like you know what? No, I love this. I enjoy this. And when I started collecting records, that's when I was like, you know, I'm gonna get Exodus. I'm gonna get Natty Dread and the live record. And then I was just like, I just kind of fell in love with it all over again through the LP, through the album. You know, going to Exodus and listening to that whole album, A side, B side, start to finish, and then that's where I reintroduced myself to Bob Marley through these great LPs. And he has many catch a fire burning Natty dread, the live album Exodus. Uh, I mean, for someone who had 15 albums, two of those are live albums, no misses. Yeah. I mean the all no, no bad ones. I mean, really, really great stuff throughout his entire career. And, And this one, Exodus is it's just exceptional, not just for Bob Marley, but exceptional for any artist, I think. And probably going to be the only artist from uh, potentially from 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 a third world country who's going to be represented. Um, that's so it's, it's, it's important. You know? Yeah. Well, and, and I think, you know, we 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 could restate this point. But I think what Roger makes the point he makes so well is of all of Bob Marley's albums, Exodus is the one that at the end of the last millennia, at the end of the, at the end of the 20th century, Time Magazine says, this is the greatest album of the century. Yeah. And, and writes at length about why that is. And so I, I, I think it's fair for us to say, this is our pick and also recognize that this isn't a pick that needs a whole lot of defending. So, listener, we could ask, did we get it right? But the reality is, if you don't think we did, go and listen to this album. Go to the bookstore. Buy Roger's book. Read about all that's going on. And go and listen to these tracks. Let yourself get sucked in to turning your stereo up too loud at the beginning of Natural Mystic. Let the joy and the hope and the optimism and the positivity of songs like Three Little Birds and One Love, let those songs move you. Because we believe, we believe that you will, if you give this album a chance, feel what we feel about it, which is that this is the best representation of Bob Marley's music. And then put on waiting in vain and turn your lights down low and get your swerve on. That's right. <laughs> Come on now. So listener, we want to thank you so much for going on this ride with us. Reach out to us at you forgot one pod on Twitter at you forgot one 
on Instagram. Of course, our website, youforgotone.com. And we're going to leave you now with our favorite Bob Marley track, Waiting in Bing. <laughs>